So uh, last night we were hanging out at Sean and Michelle's house for Halloween because we live out in the middle of nowhere. And nobody comes to our house, and if it is because they like got drunk and wrecked their car and need like a ride, which has happened. So go to Sean and Michelle's. They're like making tri-tip and bread, which is like my favorite meal. <laughs> so we go to their house, and, and their son uh, shows me this website. And I just wanted to show you guys this. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, this is actual people's exams from school. When, don't you wish you had the guts to do that in school? I mean, like, Harris, X. All right. Anyway, uh, as Jim was saying, baptisms, baptisms are a family affair. We invite all of you guys to come to baptisms. Uh, you, you get there, it's, it's at a nice place with a nice pool. It's been kind of cold a little bit lately, and except for today, so apparently we're bucking the system today. But uh, we plan to do, like, soups. And so if you, you guys show up, we provide the soups. You, you come and bring uh, cookies, something that resembles a cookie. Uh, so come and bring, like, you know, bread or salad or cookies. And you come and show up. You, you bring something with you, that and like something to drink. And then you get to be part of the baptisms. You read these stories. You hang out. You get to know each other, eat. If you want to, you can swim in the pool. It's heated. So it's all good, and we all just get together and want to be part of a big family, and people get baptized. So that's our thing. It's in two weeks. We'll have directions uh, as you guys walk out the door and tell you guys where to go. So don't plan to eat lunch except there. Like, you're going to come, and you're all going to hang out. And... Okay. Uh, last year we did this thing called Christmas for Kids. About half of you were here last year, so I'll tell you what it is. Christmas for Kids is th- there's some people because of our economy and uh, that, that can't afford to get some gifts for their kids. And we're not talking extravagant stuff. We're just talking about gifts, period. And so we did this thing last year where we had all of you give whatever you want, like you know, a buck, five bucks, whatever you had. That was, and we had this little present-looking thing in the back, and you throw it in there, and we pulled all this money together, and we went out and we helped some families who aren't, can't buy gifts for their own kids. Uh, and then we went and we had dinner with them and we had them connect with some of the people here. Well, this year we're doing the same thing, but we're also going to be connecting this with the Battered Women's Shelter. And so we'll be taking some women uh, from the Battered Women's Shelter who can't get gifts for their kids and we'll be you know, connecting with them and doing the same thing. So next week there's going to be a sign-up. And if you guys would, would like to maybe go out shopping with some of these ladies, maybe you'd like to help with dinner, uh, just a whole bunch of different stuff, we'd love you all to be involved with that because we want them connected to some of you as well and not just be people that are like, here, have a present and go away. It's, hey, why don't you have a present, connect with some people who really love God and would love to show you what the love of Jesus is like. So that's our thing. You guys down with that? Yeah, okay. All right, so we'll be starting that next week, and it'll be awesome. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? We will get going here. This is John chapter 4, verse 25, and it says, The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would understand who you are when you say that you are uh, our Redeemer, that we would be a people who live redeemed lives and that would show who you are uh, by our actions, by our attitudes, and then eventually by our words, uh, that we would truly be your kids and live under the reign of our dad. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, we are doing this six-week series called Empire. This is the last week. Oh, that's so nice. I, someone's like, thank God it's over, you know, but it's, 
Uh, this is a series that, that we've been looking at what God called his people into, what he called them to be a part of, what we today are also supposed to do with that calling. We looked at how God's kingdom and versus our kingdoms, now our kingdoms always fall short. Again, this is the last week. You can get any of the previous messages on this series at our website, ourelement.org. And I tell you this all the time, they are free, so you get what you pay for. Uh, the series culminates this week in Jesus, as all things do, because when in doubt, you go to Jesus. That's how it works. I don't got a lot of time for jokes. Sorry. That's how it works. Got lots of ground to cover. I'm going to do a brief, like maybe 10-minute coverage of everything we've talked about so far in the last five weeks. I'm going to connect that to Jesus, and we'll figure out what it means for us to call ourselves believers or Christians and how we live. Now, if you go, whoa, that's a lot of stuff, good. You're on the same page with me. Uh, following Jesus is something that is done in an historical context. We study the scriptures. This is God's unfolding message, so we can ask, what does it mean for you and I to partake in what God is calling us to today? So that's what we're doing. The way we started this series, we start talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, what the, I gave you guys this whole like 45-minute message about what the kingdom of God was. And you guys are like, oh, that's great. And then we spent the next weeks actually talking about how that idea came to be. So the first place we actually looked at after that was a place called Egypt. In Egypt, you have these slaves. Uh, they are crying out to God because of their slavery. Exodus 3, 7, and 8 says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. So we saw that Egypt is a place where God hears the cry of the oppressed. And it's not just that he hears the cry, but God actually comes down and he rescues them. These people are in bondage to Pharaoh, and as we are in bondage to our own sin. And this cry that they cry out inaugurates redemptive history. God always hears the cry of those who are oppressed. Egypt is a very real place, but it is also a metaphor for us today in what this whole idea of sin is. We are all born into Egypt. We are all born into this idea of sin. But Egypt is also an example of what we call systemic injustice. Uh, sin that we are born into always wants to connect everybody else to us and our sin so it grows. Like when you're mad at somebody, you tell everybody else how you're mad at that person so you can get them mad at that person too. And your sin just kind of grows and it comes. Now all these people are mad at these people and nobody really knows how it started. You know, Romeo and Juliet starts like this. It says, you know, there was an airy word that was spoken and all of a sudden this is years later and people are trying to kill each other in the streets. It's amazing. This is what sin does. Sin always builds itself ahead of steam and becomes systemic. What happens in Egypt? It becomes slavery. They are taking uh, the Hebrews and they are making them slaves. It's a whole system of injustice. It opposes people and holds people down. And so what we looked at was we looked at a guy named Billy Graham. And now Billy Graham calls people to individual forgiveness and love of God. It's a great message and it's a true message. Uh, but that's just between you and God. Then we also looked at a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. And he came to a whole society and he said racism, systemic injustice is wrong. We talked about how it's not just one or the other. It's both. They both go together. Yes, Jesus saves us individually, but it's never supposed to just stay there. It's supposed to grow out and make a difference in the world around us. Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. And so from there, we looked at a place called Sinai. Okay, at Sinai, we looked at how, how God just, just doesn't call his people out and rescue them and give them redemption. They have them make a fan club and put fishes on their cars and, and run around and say, Oh, look, we're saved. Oh, we're Christians. Oh, isn't so wonderful. God rescues them for a reason. 
for a reason. God has a purpose for them to be his people that walk a path. After God brings his people out of bondage in Israel, this is what, in Egypt, this is what he says in Exodus 19.3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if, and here's a little if-then clause coming, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Where this takes place is a place called Sinai. God gives his people mission and identity. He calls them his priests. What a priest does is a priest mediates the divine. A priest is somebody that you can look at to see what the God that priest serves looks like. So you'd say, you know, well, if you look at Christians, you know, what, what does their God look like? Well, it looks like Christians. Well, their God's crazy. <laughs> you know, look at how they live the half the time. But that's the point. He calls these people his priests. The invitation to them is that when people see them and the way they live in a very tangible way, it will show the world who God is. God is looking for a body. We connect this with the New Testament, how the church today is supposed to be called the body of Christ. In Exodus 7.1, God says to Moses that you will be like God to Pharaoh. The medium becomes the message. And so we looked at it as how you are the message to the world, how we live. You know, your life, your redemption, your rescue, your salvation. What the God who created everything is doing, we are the message. That God is real and God is doing something in the world because he has changed us. You know, it's, it's, it's more than just rescue. God gives mission and identity at Sinai. Again, in the New Testament, you see the church as the body of Christ. It means you and I become the hands and the feet of God, God dwelling in the midst of his people. All this takes place at Sinai. This whole idea is there. The the church of Jesus is a rebirth of God's original idea because God is looking for a body, the hands and feet, to show the world who he is, and that now becomes the body of Christ. The third place we looked at was Jerusalem. And we looked at 1 Kings 9, 10, and 11. God's people, actually, after Sinai, they they end up eventually getting a kingdom, and they build an empire. uh, And they have this main city in this empire called Jerusalem. and, And so now they have this kingdom. And so kingdoms can go one or two ways. And the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, 9, and 10 speaks to Solomon, and she says, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So, the reason God blessed them is so they would maintain justice and righteousness. They would have a heart for the people who were like them, the people that were marginalized and stepped on and oppressed. Oh, that was it. In chapter chapter 9, 15, it says this, Here is the record of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his palace, and the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So you see that King Solomon now has slaves. In uh, 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4, it says he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines for harvesting wheat. It doesn't get any funnier. No? Okay. Okay. All right. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So he's a son of David. And what you see is that Solomon now has slaves and 700 wives. So what we started to call this, we called this the empire of indifference. That this kingdom that gets itself surrounded by comfort, all of a sudden maintaining your comfort becomes your priority in life. In Egypt, we saw there is an individual dimension of sin, but also a systemic you know, uh, part of sin. 
In Jerusalem, you see both of these take place. What you see in chapter 11 is his heart has turned away from God and he has 700 wives. And in chapter 9, the whole country is pursuing systemic injustice by having slavery. These people were once slaves and they build their empire with slaves. The same thing that they cried out to God to deliver them from is the same thing they are perpetrating on other people. Oppressors. They become the oppressors. The key word in all the Jewish festivals was always this word, remember, remember. You know why remember? Because we forget. It's simple, right? It's like 2 plus 2 equals X. There's X, right? We, 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 we forget. It says, remember Egypt, remember Egypt, remember Egypt. When they get to Jerusalem, have they remembered Egypt? No, they forgot. So we looked at what happens when all of our resources go to protect what we have, when we forget that... that we, that God has given us stuff so that we would bless other people with it instead of just hoard it to ourselves. And we saw what happens you know, when we use those resources not to bless those around us and simply seek our own comfort. Something dangerous can happen in Jerusalem. It can go one of two ways. Then we look at a place called Babylon. In, Jer- in Jerusalem, they lost their mission and identity. So what God does, because he's very loving and very gracious, is he starts to send prophets to them. And these prophets go and they say, repent Return to who God called you to be. The, the word for repent and return is the word teshuva. It means to come back home to who God calls you to be. Return to your mission. Return to your identity. Come back to the way of God because the more you do these things, your heart is becoming harder and harder. In Second Chronicles 36.15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through His messengers again and again because He had pity on His people and on His dwelling place. That's Jerusalem. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Verse 20, he carried into exile where they started. He carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword. So if you're not killed by the sword, you get plan B. Yay! Slavery. Not that great of a plan B. And they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. They go to Babylon. They become servants. The Hebrew word for servants is the word abed, and it means slave. Many years later, actually, they, some of them return to Jerusalem. Uh, there's a guy named Herod, and he builds another temple, but this temple is very corrupted. It is very tainted. And that is the setting that Jesus actually starts to preach in with this tainted temple. And so what we looked at is so we looked at how they started as slaves, and they cry out, and they became a people with a calling, and they get to Jerusalem, and they build this empire. And they stop hearing the cry, and so God allows them to be crushed and taken to a foreign land as slaves, which is right back to where they started, and they start to cry out again. But how often does God hear the cry? How often does God hear the cry? Always. God always hears the cry. And in Babylon, these people cry out. Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. This starts with slaves crying out in Egypt. God, save us. Save us, and God does. What happens at the, you know, at the end of the entire Old Testament, you have this book called Malachi. You know, Malachi ends with, you know, the next thing that's going to happen is, the, you know, Messiah's going to be at the temple, and this is, this is what's going to happen. And you have this 400 years of silence. 
know, the whole time they're, like, they're in Egypt, they have, they have 430 years of silence. At the end of the Old Testament, you have 40 years of silence between Malachi and the birth narratives of where Christ comes. And a rabbi would start his public ministry at age 30. And then so all of a sudden, Jesus comes, 430 years of silence, just like there was 430 years of silence in exile in Egypt. And Jesus comes, and he starts to proclaim, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Everything that Jesus does is with the backdrop of this story to these people. And if you simply think Santa Maria 2009, you're going to miss what he's saying. You know, many of them are back in Israel, yet they are still in exile. The Romans oppressed them. They are still a conquered people. Their hearts are indebted to sin. Moses comes and he brings them out to a place called Sinai. And so with that in mind, with Egypt, Sinai, Jerusalem, Babylon, their cry that someone would come and redeem them, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 43. You're like, oh, I actually opened my Bible today. Yes, you will. John chapter 1. Fourth book, New Testament. Someone actually told me they like it when I do that because it'll help. So, John chapter 1, verse 43 says this. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So he calls a disciple. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, is from the town of Bethsaida. Now, this is actually a small fishing village that is very orthodox. Okay, uh, Orthodox means right belief, so they had all these beliefs that they believed about what was going to happen. It's in the Jewish north shore of Galilee. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, the one Moses wrote about refers to Deuteronomy 18.18. Which we looked at last week, where God through Moses says, I will bring another redeemer like you, Moses, to set my people free. And so you saw that, that all the, the prophets in the Old Testament start looking forward to this because they are in bondage, they are in exile, they're looking for this new deliverer, this new Moses. And all of a sudden, this is now how they are understanding Jesus, the one Moses wrote in about the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, first book of the New Testament. 4.17. Jesus comes. His ministry begins. He goes to this place called Capernaum. Okay? It's very nice. It's by the beach. Okay? He's like, oh, hey. You know, it's, it's great. Uh, and what Matthew does in, at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 4 is he talks about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And then he quotes Isaiah about these exiles returning home and coming back. Then he says in Matthew 4.17, after these things, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So what is that? That's Jesus. You know, a new Moses building a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. He, Hebrews would have understood this word repent to be the word teshuba, to come back, to come home, return, return. That is exile language. It's a language of people stuck in exile. Jesus says, you may even now be in the land, and, and, but you're not living as the people of God. Come back from your exile and let's build a new kingdom, one that upholds justice and righteousness. Everything Jesus is doing here is working off of their story. This is what he is working within. He calls them to a purpose and a mission, a new kingdom, to return from their exile. This whole five weeks, kingdom of God in Egypt, Sinai, Jerusalem, Babylon, this is... You, you have to get this to understand where he's going with all of this. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 8, 9. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus doesn't speak in a vacuum. 
Okay? He, he speaks with things that are loaded with story. Israel is supposed to be a people of God, yet they were conquered by Rome. So they're asking, why? Why are we conquered by Rome? They're sort of paralyzed because they think, how can we really be God's people when we get beat up all the time? This is not what people who follow God should have happen to them. Their mission and their identity that they were called to, they had left behind. But Jesus is calling them to come back to it, to step into it, and yet they are paralyzed. Now, you may think I'm stretching this a bit, but I think you'll understand by the time we get done with this. Matthew 9, chapter 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. So paralyzed guy, he's lying on a mat. Matthew is writing to Jews. So he picks certain things in Jesus' life to throw in here so that Jews would understand what he is trying to say. This is at a time when the entire nation is paralyzed. An Eastern writer would write communally. Okay, they write communally. We, we read individually. It's right when we read something like in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens and the earth. You know, we read that individually and we look at it and we go, where's dinosaur? It doesn't say the word dinosaur. I got a problem. I need to say the word dinosaur. When communally speaking, it is God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. That's how they wrote. And so we come at it not really understanding how these people are actually trying to say certain things. So, this is what it says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow was blaspheming. So Jesus confronts their religious leader's attitude. And then in verse 6, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the par- then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and walk. He says, Get up, take your mat, and go home. That is exile language. It is exile language. This is about an actual man who actually gets healed. Don't mistake that, okay? I'm not like one of those, okay? But Matthew's target audience is Jews. Do you think these Jews, these early readers, could have saw more to this? You're paralyzed. You need to go home. You need to get up. Israel, come home. Be the people God made you to be. That is the language of exile. Now, leave your finger in Matthew. And I want you to open to Isaiah chapter 49. After Psalms, before Daniel, okay, general vicinity, you'll find it. Isaiah 49. God is here actually speaking about bringing his people back. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Caleb, you're like my litmus. I'm watching you. Okay, 49, verse 6. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? So restore, bring back, again, more exile language. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The, the original mission, this is what he's calling him back to, the original mission. You know, these people were to live lives in such a way that the whole world would know there is a God. This passage shows that God's intention is not just to bring you back, but to bring you back so you're restored and the way you live, you become a light to everybody around you. In this case... He was telling them that you'd be a light to them, to everybody who's not Jewish. In our vernacular, we would say you'd be a light to anybody who is not a believer or doesn't believe in Christ, to those who are not Christians. Now go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. This is another individual verse. But knowing what you know, and if you kind of try and read it like a Hebrew would read it, what other connotation can you actually get? Matthew 5, 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Do you think he has anything in mind there? Of course he does. Come back. Be the people you were called to be. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it on a bowl. You aren't true to God when you hide who God calls you to be. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In Jewish thought, a house is, is not just a home, but the earth is considered God's house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and pray, it's the word glorify, your Father in heaven. It says to Israel, your original calling was to be light to the world, and you are invited back to return from exile and be the light of the world, to step into the kingdom of God. Just like he says to us today, you are invited out of your sin and your indifference and your self-centeredness to step into the kingdom of God. Now, what does this mean for us? It means a whole lot, okay? <laughs> you know, for many people today, you know, our world, the past several years, has kind of uh, talked about you know this this whole idea of individual forgiveness in, in America. You know the the dominant understanding is you need to be forgiven for your sins. Is that true? Yes, yes. You're terrible. You need to be forgiven for your sins. Okay, there. Now we affirm this as a good thing. But what is the point? What is the purpose? We get told that the purpose of this individual forgiveness is so that we get to leave this place and go to heaven. We get to get out of here. So we make these bumper stickers and people put them on their cars and they say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. It should say, in case of rapture, this car will be a missile and it could kill you, but I don't care because I'm out of here. Okay. Think of how much the language today is built around a faith that is an escape plan or fire insurance. How many magazines or newspapers keep doing these stupid surveys about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? The questions that our culture understands when they think of the Christian message and the understanding is Christians are a group of people who believe that they have the way that when they die or when this place blows up, they are the ones who know how to get out of here. This is everywhere. It's everywhere. And so the language becomes, are you going to heaven? Where are you going when you die? What are you are they going? Are you going? Who, who's going? You know what I mean, right? You guys, yeah? Okay. So if you start with the Bible, with the scriptures, which is always a great place to start, you know, and as a Christian, we should look at the words of Jesus' message because it's even better. From the last five weeks, you see that Jesus' message centers around a few things. I would say three main things. And none of them are about getting out of here. None of them. This has much relevance for us. The first thing that Jesus brings up is he talks about, he confronts Israel with their God-given destiny, which means he confronts you and I with our God-given destiny. You are called to be light. You are called to be salt. He is speaking to religious people, people with this entire backstory who get this, that Jesus is this new Moses who will lead people home, build a new kingdom, not a Solomon kingdom, but God's kingdom, that you get a mission and identity in the world. The second thing he talks about is that people live in such a way that they bring heaven to earth. You never see Jesus say, do this, and you get to go to a really sweet place. You never see Jesus say that. And then you get to use your donkey as a missile. You, know, you, you never see him say stuff like that. What he does is he invites people to, Father, your will be done on earth here now as it is in heaven. That's what he invites people to do. Bring heaven to earth by how you live as the light of the world. See, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't talk about, you know, heaven and, and life after death and all that. But first and foremost, his message is not, this is what will get you out of here. It was, this is your calling to be a certain kind of people here and now. Your obedience is what the world will notice. His first century context is not, let's get out of here. It was, you were called to be light to the world. Repent and return to the calling that God gave you. The third thing he talks about is this message of salvation and repentance and hope and new life is directed at those who claim to know God. 
Jesus goes to the religious people and calls them to live the life that they claim to be living and the responsibility, if they say they are a people of God, to be the people of God, to actually live in the kingdom of God. When Christians run around the world and they say to people who never claim to know God, you are out of line, that is not something Jesus actually did. He goes to those who claim to know God and confronts them with their lack of obedience, their hard heart, their indifference, and he says, return and be who I called you to be. The message is about flesh and blood people stepping into their God-given destiny because that is how people will know the message and show the kingdom of God. You guys following? Yes, good. How many of us? Do you, you, know, you watch TV or listen to the radio and, and they like interview some Christian. If you're like me, my first thing is like, oh no, what are they going to say? Oh, because I always get freaked out because I'm always like, oh my goodness. You know? And what they usually do is they point the finger at how the world's going to hell. And I have a thought when I see this in the back of my head and I'm like, I don't know if that's working. I don't know if that's working because it isn't what Jesus did. He goes to those who claim to follow God And he says, when you are the people of God and you live how God calls you to live, then it will not be fuzzy for the world. Then they will get it. What is fuzzy is when you claim to be something and your life does not back it up. When you look at the church today, the divorce rate inside the church is the same as that outside the church. The cohabitation rate inside the church is the same as that outside the church. Uh, The same amount of people cheat on their taxes who go to church as, as those who don't. There is no difference. And so how do we make ourselves different? We just become really weird. And we dress odd and we point our finger at everybody and say, you're screwed up. ah," Because we're not living as the people of God. And Jesus calls us to simply live as the people of God. We have to be a people who are living and telling the whole story. We all run back to Egypt in our lives. We all do. And yet Jesus comes and he pulls us out of our bondage and calls us into new life. All the time. So guys, you know, for you, how does this work out? You know, I don't know, maybe you are in bondage to money, to debt. Maybe you don't know how to climb out of the hole that you are in. That is in Egypt. And Jesus calls you to come home. And if you don't know how to create a budget or get your finances under control, talk to one of the elders, one of the deacons. We'll get you in touch with somebody who can help you design a budget. Because that is in Egypt and you need to come home. Maybe you're in bondage to your sexuality. Sexuality was created to be a very good thing, but done how God calls us to do it. You know, people who live together before they get married have a 75% higher chance of divorce, and yet nobody listens to statistics like that. That's not a Christian statistic. People who live together before they get married, they break up. You lose a piece of you. You lose a piece of who you are. You know, and we all think we know how to do it better than God, so we keep going the same direction we're going, and we just keep screwing it up over and over and over. Maybe you are looking for love in all the wrong places and you're looking for your value and worth in places other than the God who made you. That is in Egypt. And God calls you to come home. Maybe you're in bondage to religion. And maybe, maybe you think you know, God is a very harsh taskmaster master like, the, like the Egyptians to the Israelites when they are in Egypt. You know, maybe you think, I've got to do this and this and this or God's not going to love me anymore. And you, know, you serve God out of fear and not out of love. That is in Egypt. And God calls you to come home. You know, maybe, maybe you are in bondage and, and you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or food or shopping. I, I don't know, okay? And, and what happens is, you know, the, the, these things, they get so deep and ingrained in you and they've got you by the person you... 
you know, I had a headache this morning, and someone goes, oh, you should just drink the wine. And I go, no, then I wouldn't. Then I'd say things I shouldn't say. Okay. But, and, and, and they got you. That is bondage. That is in Egypt. And Jesus says, come home. Maybe you're addicted to comfort. You know, maybe you're endlessly taking care of your possessions, your stuff. I have a friend. I had lunch with them this week. And uh, two years ago, they had, they had all kinds of stuff. Like house, car, all kinds of really cool stuff. And they lost it all. And they said two years ago, they, they were sitting in front of the house they used to own on the curb with a suitcase with clothes in it, and that's all they owned. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And they said, no, no, no. These last two years have been the most joyful years of my life because I'm free of all this stuff and this burden, and I'm actually able to live free. Is comfort your God? And maybe when someone steps too close, they become the enemy. You know, all your time and effort and money all go into taking care of your own comfort. Jesus wants to set you free from that, and he wants to make your life dangerous again. Dangerous, like a suitcase and nothing else. That's in Egypt. You need to come home. Maybe you're in bondage to anger or hatred. Maybe somebody's wronged you, and you're just just not going to let it go, and you need to forgive them, but you won't. It's destroying you. That is in Egypt. And Jesus says, come home. Maybe you're in bondage to yourself, and maybe you feel like you have screwed up things so bad in your life, you can never come home. You can come home. Or maybe you think that you're just so, you're so wonderful, okay? Then you're in bondage to you, and you're not wonderful. You're terrible, sinner. Come home. Come home. You know, maybe you wish that you were thinner or stronger, had more money, different talents. It's all Egypt. And Jesus says, come home to the kingdom of God. Jesus is this new Moses, and he longs to lead us out of our slavery and into freedom and a better land into his kingdom. You are born into a condition like the Israelites in Egypt that you cannot shake. You are born a slave to sin. And Jesus wants to set you free. In John 8, 36, Jesus says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus wants to rescue you and have you partake in the building of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that endures and makes a difference in your life and the lives around you. Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the dead so that you can be called to live free, to follow him out of bondage. Even if you have screwed things up over and over and over, you're still being invited to return from exile. And you become the message of what God has done in you. There's a, there's a story that Jesus tells in Scripture about this young guy. And he goes to his dad and he says, and he says give me my inheritance. And his dad, for some reason, says, okay. You know, so his dad gives him all this money, and the kid goes and wastes it all on like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it's like America. And, and, he, and he loses all of his money. He's a jerk. You know, nobody likes him. At one point, he ends up just so hungry. He's looking at pigs eating slop, and he's like, oh, that looks good. Okay, when pig slop looks good, you, you need to get a job. Okay? <laughs> so he decides, you know, it's better to be a servant in my father's house than sit here and want to eat pig slop. So he gets up, and he starts to walk home. His father sees him. You know what his father does? runs down the driveway, grabs this kid, hugs him, and says, I'm so glad to have you home. Now, is that just an individual story, or is it something that pertains to all of us? All of us. God stands there, arms wide open, running to tackle you to the ground and hug you to himself because he wants you to come home. And sometimes when he tackles you, you're like, oh, get off me. And he's like, I just love you. And sometimes when God knocks you down, it's kind of crazy, and you get scraped up and stuff because God wants you to change. But he hugged you to himself and says, come home. You come home to mission, 
and identity and hope and grace and renewed life. You come home to the kingdom of God. Every week, I bring you guys to communion. Because communion is a place where you remember that Jesus invites us to come home. You take that cracker and you break it like his body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. So we can come home. So we can live this redeemed life. So we worship God by taking and remembering him through communion this morning. The band's going to come up. And they're going to do some songs. And as they do these songs, you guys are invited to partake and to sing along in these songs of God's redemption and God's hope for us. Because he has called us home. While they play, you can take communion. uh, You can pray where you're at. And I encourage you to do so. Ask God the places where you are in bondage, where you are living in Egypt, and where you need to come home from. There'll be deacons and elders in the back of the room. And if you have never met Jesus Christ, they would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus. If you are a Christian and yet your life is just surrounded by this bondage, they would also love to pray with you and help you to find this way to come home. We worship God through uh, giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the very back. And we give simply because God gave so much to you and I. So we give back and give me back as part of our worship. And then we're going to worship God through fellowship where you guys just don't run out the doors and be like, oh, thank God, church is over. But you, you talk to other people and you get to know each other because in the kingdom of God, we spur one another on so that we are people who truly live this redeemed life that have come home. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. All the things that God does so that we can truly be his people and live in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for being a God that has rescued and redeemed and saved us. That we'd be a people who live in your kingdom under your kingship and that people would know who you are because we live under your kingship. And so often we get in bondage to our own desires and the things that we want and don't live in the freedom that you have died and rose to give to us. But this morning, God asked you to grab a hold of every single one of our hearts and we would be a people who learn from all the mistakes that we have done, all the mistakes that have been done to us, and that we would start to live as a free people. Those free from bondage and being a light to the world and making a difference as you call us to make a difference. Because you are a great and a good and a mighty and a holy God. And you have given us righteousness and justice and truth and peace and grace and love. And our lives should reflect those as well. Have us be a people who walk by faith even when we can't see where you're pulling us to. To be a people who see our great and good God grabbing us, knocking us to the ground in a gigantic bear hug, telling us to come home. Have us come home. Amen.